Hello there and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Solomon Ashams in Abuja, Nigeria, and by Stuart Weir, our European football expert. And on this week's show, we talk about another one of Stuart's top 10 Africans to have played in the English Premier League. This week, it's Togo's Emmanuel Adebayor. Well, he's played over 200 games in the Premier League, scored 80 goals. You can actually make a strong case that he has not ever fully achieved his potential. With the Rio Paralympics ending this weekend, it's Japan's turn to host the next Olympic Games and the Paralympics in 2020. We find out a bit about what to expect in Japan. Rio maybe had a bit more uh, flamboyance and flair. I think Japan seems a lot more cutting edge and a bit more futuristic. And also Stuart concludes his series looking at the life of former FIFA president Sepp Blatter. That's coming up later. But first, there were very interesting comments this week from former Portugal, Real Madrid and Barcelona star Luis Figo, who says that Cristiano Ronaldo is not Portugal's best ever player. It's actually Eusebio, says Figo. Now, Eusebio was born in what is now Maputo in Mozambique back in 1942, when the country was still a Portuguese colony. Although Eusebio played for the colonial power Portugal, he's counted by many as an African footballer. He died in 2014, and Figo says that Eusebio is greater than Ronaldo, having scored 733 goals in 745 matches for Benfica, winning the FIFA Ballon d'Or in 1965, a year before leading Portugal to their best-ever placing at a World Cup as they finished third in 1966. Eusebio was also the tournament's top scorer at that World Cup with nine goals and he went on to finish his international career with 41 goals in 61 matches. Impressive statistics and in 15 seasons at Benfica he led the club to 11 titles winning the 1962 European Cup, now the Champions League. Well, Luis Figo told a Spanish newspaper that he admires Cristiano Ronaldo and enjoys watching his achievements but that Ronaldo isn't close to Eusebio as yet. Well, Ronaldo is the current FIFA Ballon d'Or title holder and enjoyed one of his best seasons ever after leading Real Madrid to the Champions League and his country to their first major international trophy, the Euro 2016. But Figo sums it up by saying, even though I never saw Eusebio play, I put him at number one for everything he stands for, for the love he showed me, his friendship and his advice. So Mozambique-born Eusebio getting some huge admiration from the great Luis Figo. Well, we'll stay on the theme of all-time greats here on Planet Sport Football Africa as we're going through a selection of Stuart Weir's top 10 Africans to have played in the English Premier League. So far, we've had Nigeria's Nwanko Kanu, Ghana's Michael Essien and Senegal's Sadio Mane. Something may be of a surprise inclusion, but Stuart put Mane in there because of the huge transfer fee paid by Liverpool and his hat-trick in 2 minutes and 56 seconds back in 2015. Well, this week, Stuart picks Togo's Emmanuel Adebayor. He's just finished his 10th season in the Premier League and he's played for four clubs, Arsenal, Manchester City, Tottenham and Crystal Palace. 
Well, he's played over 200 games in the Premier League, scored 80 goals. You can actually make a strong case that he has not ever fully achieved his potential. In 2007-8 season, he scored 24 goals for Arsenal in 36 games. It was a brilliant achievement, but it's actually something he's never been able to repeat. In fact, just one year later, Arsenal were happy to sell him to Manchester City. In his first season at Manchester City, again, he was good, scoring 14 goals and 25 appearances. Yet, the following season, he only appeared twice and went on loan to Real Madrid. At Real Madrid, he had six starts, eight sub-appearances, scored five goals, but that again was the end of his Spanish career. In 2011-12, he went to Tottenham on loan, scoring 17 goals and 32 starts, but over the next seasons, he was involved in 46 games, scoring 16 goals, but then fell out of favour at Tottenham, as he had done everywhere else. And was on the payroll at Tottenham for several months without kicking a ball. And in fact, he joined Crystal Palace in January 2016, helped them to survive in the Premier League and to reach the FA Cup final. But the irony was that some of his wages were still being paid by Tottenham. Adebayor, though, has always had the knack of scoring important or significant goals. When Arsenal beat Manchester United at Old Trafford 1-0, Adebayor scored. In the North London derby, Arsenal beat Spurs 3-1, two goals for Adebayor. He scored for Arsenal away to AC Milan in the Champions League, away to Villarreal and also at home where he scored with a bicycle kick at that same tie. He scored for Manchester City against Arsenal. He scored for Tottenham against Arsenal. Now, he did seem to enjoy scoring against the teams that had released him. And in the 2007-8 season, Arsenal beat Derby County 5-0 and 6-2. And Adebayer scored three goals in each of those two games. His discipline was something which perhaps left a bit to be desired. And he received red cards again in crucial games. In the League Cup final, when Arsenal lost 2-1 to Chelsea, Adebayer was unable to finish the game. Similarly, he was sent off for Arsenal against Liverpool and for Spurs against Arsenal. In fact, controversy always seemed to follow him. In one Arsenal game, he appeared to hit his teammate, Nicholas Bentner. And when he played for Manchester City against former club Arsenal, he was banned for three games for kicking Robin van Persie in the face. And in the same game, Alexander Song said that Adebayer had hit him and Cesc Fabregas claimed that Adebayer had tried to stamp on him. He was also often in conflict with managers. Andre Villas-Boas at Tottenham had him train with the reserves for a period, and Roberto Mancini said very publicly at Man City that Adebayer did not feature in his future plans. When he was at Madrid... He won the Copa del Rey with Real Madrid, and surprisingly, that is the only time he has ever won a trophy in his career. I mean, ironically, he twice played for the club, which reached the Champions League final, but neither time did he actually play. 2004 with Monaco, he was an unused sub, and 2005 with Arsenal, he was cup-tied and not eligible. In 2008, he was the BBC African Player of the Year and also the CAF Footballer of the Year. 
He helped Togo qualify for the 2006 World Cup for the first time, but was then dropped before the World Cup over a dispute involving bonus payments and whatever. The issue happily was settled and he did play for Togo in that World Cup. In 2010, Adebayar was one of the players involved when Togo's national team bus came under gunfire on their way to the Africa Cup of Nations in Angola. In the fatal attack, all the players survived, but three members of the coaching and backroom staff were killed, which led to Togo withdrawing from the tournament and Adebayor announcing his retirement from international football on grounds of personal safety. Fortunately for Togo, he changed his mind, returned to the fold and finished up playing 66 games for Togo, scoring 30 goals and, as I said, helping them to get to the World Cup for the one and only time so far. Adebayor had a great talent and achieved a great deal But somehow, I can't help thinking he should have got more out of that talent and spent less time in conflict with managers, other players and administrators. That's Stuart Weir with his views on Emmanuel Adebayor, who's currently a free agent as his six-month contract with Crystal Palace expired at the end of June. So Solomon Stewart there saying he feels that Adebayor never quite fulfilled his huge potential. Uh, what do you think? Well, Steve, I wouldn't say um, Emmanuel Adebayor never really fulfilled his huge potential as a football player. Uh, because if you look at his performances, individual performances, that is, as a football player for the numerous clubs that he has played for, uh, he's done quite well and not bad at all for a, a striker. Interestingly, for the Togolese national team, where he played for uh, as a captain at one point, he's, he has scored 31 goals in 66 games. So almost an average of one goal uh, every two games. So, so you cannot really say that he hasn't really achieved his potential. Individually, he has won accolades such as the BBC African Footballer of the Year, the CAF African Player of the Year, the BBC Goal of the Season. Also, he got that. You know, uh, for the Togolese national team, he was basically the only known player for a very long time. And he had to carry uh, the burden of goal scoring on his shoulders for a very long time, getting the Togolese national team to their very first World Cup. Uh, so he's really achieved and, and taken Togolese football where it's never been before. Uh, he could have done better, but at the same time, I think he has done really well. So uh, Solomon with different views to Stuart there, saying that Adebayor has done well, uh, despite a few uh, disappointments in his career. And uh, Solomon, Adebayor often clashed with the Togo Football Federation, often about the way that national team players were treated. Uh, Do you feel that he achieved anything in improving things for the players? Well, Steve, Adebayor has always been in the news for his country, especially in trying to get the Togolese Football Federation to protect the players, to pay bonuses. Uh, You remember he has retired, I think, two or three times already before now he has you know used his own money to try to fund uh, some of the players and support the team but things cannot just go on that way and I feel if I look back through his career from his very first appearance at the World Cup in 20 
06 and also the drama and, and his retirement and putting pressure on the Togolese Football Federation. I think he has done well. I think he has really brought a lot of attention to uh, certain areas and ways that football is run in Togo. He has also given other players the motivation to speak up uh, wherever they feel things are not done right. You know, that needs to be done. And I do hope that even the Football Federation in Togo has learned its lesson. There are certain things that they may have uh, been taken for granted, but right now they, they have to put things in order uh, because of some of the numerous uh, past incidences. Well, thanks a lot, Solomon. And Emmanuel Adebayor has never been afraid of speaking his mind and standing up for fellow players. Well, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this on Facebook and WhatsApp this week. We're asking, has Emmanuel Adebayor fulfilled his potential? He did well at Arsenal, as Stuart said, but not so well at Man City, Real Madrid and Tottenham, although he has always been able to score those important goals. So tell us, do you think that Emmanuel Adebayor has fulfilled his potential as a player? Send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight. Eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. We'll go to our Facebook page, Planet Sport Football Africa. It'd be great to hear your thoughts on whether you think that Emmanuel Adebayor has fulfilled his potential. Well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. More from Stuart Weir later as he assesses Sepp Blatter's time as FIFA president. Now you can download our app and get to listen to the show any time you like. To download it, go to the Play Store or the Apple iTunes App Store and enter Planet Sport Football Africa. Once you've downloaded, you can listen to the show any time on the app and access past programmes too in our archive. And you can also listen to the show on our website, that's planetsportfootballafrica.com. And our Twitter handle is at planetsportfa. Follow us on Twitter at planetsportfa. Now, the Rio Paralympics end this weekend in Brazil, coming after the Olympic Games last month. And I've really been enjoying the Paralympics, some amazing sports there, as well as the football, there's wheelchair tennis, sitting volleyball, athletics for the partially sighted, some of whom run with another person attached to them by a string as their guide, and many other sports where the athletes are simply inspiring to watch. Now, the Olympics and the Paralympics are held in the same city, so it was Rio this time, and in 2020 it'll be Tokyo in Japan hosting the Olympic Games and the Paralympics. Well, our team in Rio, Tom Ellis and Andy Bloss, have found out more about what to expect at the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo in Japan. As Rio 2016 comes to an end, it's time to look forward and the attention turns to Tokyo for the Olympic Games and the Paralympic Games, which will be held there in 2020. Today we've come to Japan House, where there's exhibition spaces and displays and performances going on in the background right now, showing off some of the culture and the things we might expect to see in Tokyo. We know there's going to be five new sports at the Games. There's going to be surfing, skateboarding, climbing, baseball and karate. Andy, we're stood now, there's some performances going on in the background. From what you've seen here today, what can we expect, do you think, from Tokyo 2020? I think in Japan, from, we can, from, from what we can tell here today, 
it's going to be a bit more cutting edge, higher technology, more environmentally friendly. You look at the stadium they're proposing for Olympics in 2020, and it looks incredible. It looks uh, loads of kind of trees planted on top of it, low roof so people can look over the city and it's not um, disrupting the viewing space of the city. It looks incredible. So it's going to be very different, um, but just as exciting. Rio maybe had a bit more uh, flamboyance and flair. I think Japan seems a lot more cutting edge and a bit more futuristic. And we've tried the tap water they've got here in Japan House. We've tried the Tokyo tap water. We've seen the 8K HD TV screens, which are amazing. The pictures look amazing. And and now we're just watching one of the performances. Uh, we've seen taiko drumming, which is sure to be a big feature. Um, and we've seen some samurai dancers. And, and what is it that we're seeing now? It looks like some kind of medieval type dancers with some ladders and doing some singing. Um, maybe it's a kind of poetry. I'm not entirely sure what is going on, but it certainly gives us a flavour, a taste of Tokyo 2020. We're just going to speak to Atuko Sakai, who's involved in a programme called Sport for Tomorrow, about what Tokyo 2020 might look like. We see a lot of uh, competitive athletes, the top high-level athletes in the Tokyo Olympics, but uh, we only don't want to see those athletes just competing in the games, but we also want to see the, a lot of people enjoying the sport, from the only, not from the only watching, but also for the playing. And what we are working for the 2020 is that we want to create an environment in which everyone can enjoy the sport on a daily basis. How different will it be to Rio 2016, do you think? Despite of the countryside, Brazil is much, much more bigger than Japan. Japan having this concept called the smaller city, the compact city of having hosting the Tokyo Olympics. And what we expect from the, this Brazil, uh, Rio's Olympics is that uh, we want to pass on the cultural and also athletic aspect of sports value that being created in this uh, uh, this Olympics and also the Paralympics game and we also want to create our new shared values that can be passed on to the next generation and also for the next Olympics and Paralympics games. There we heard a bit about what Tokyo 2020 might look like and how they're hoping to pass down shared values to the next generation. During Rio 2016, we also spoke to a church worker visiting Brazil to get an idea of what outreach groups are doing during the Games. The Japanese are still recovering from the tsunami of 2011 and still remember the atomic bombs dropped in World War II. Tatsura Shimura told us why he thinks the church has an important role to play during the Tokyo Olympics. So I came to Rio to see what the Brazilian church is doing ministry-wise so we can learn and prepare for Tokyo 2020 Olympics. And why do you think that's going to be an important thing to do in Japan? Since the 2011 earthquake and tsunami that really changed uh, people's hearts in Japan, they're really thinking about the more important things in life. Before then, they weren't really, they were involved in their own lives, so it's really kind of changed the mindset of the Japanese people. Churches have been open and involved, but it's still really um, small church in Japan, so that's something uh, very important, I think. And why do you think it's important that people do then turn to God? So I think since before World War II, um, 
Japanese were really thinking about what is the important things in life, what, should, what is the right thing to do. But I think at the same time, the church was really kind of persecuted and, and shut down, and so because of that, they kind of, in fear, uh, kept spe quit speaking out. And when the nuclear bomb was dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that really, uh, that really broke the heart of the Japanese people. So Japanese have a, a big sense of pride, and so they turned their pride to a different area, which is money, and so they, fight, they fought for money and economy. But regardless of war or financial prosperity, Japanese people have not found the true hope, the true happiness. So I actually met Jesus when I was 20 years old, and since then I really believe that this is the answer to Japanese people are looking for, that he is um, the one who can truly fulfill them. And the only person, the only thing that can really uh, understand the Japanese heart is God himself who created them. So some shocking events in Japan's history has caused some people to seek God. Well, thanks a lot to Tom Ellis and Andy Bloss in Rio, and we look forward to the 2020 Olympics and Paralympics in Tokyo in Japan. Well, there were lots of exciting games in the UEFA Champions League as the group stage began this week, and the reigning African footballer of the year, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, was on target. The Gabon striker scored for his German club Borussia Dortmund as they won 6-0 away to Legia Warsaw of Poland. And a dream start for English champions Leicester, winning 3-0 away to Club Bruges of Belgium. Two goals for the English player of the season, Riyad Mahrez. The Algerian scored with a great free kick and then with a penalty. And Nigeria's Kelechi Iheanacho scored for Manchester City as they beat Borussia Dortmund of Germany 4-0. That's a first Champions League goal for Iheanacho and the next games in the Champions League take place at the end of this month. Well, finally, on the show this week, Stuart concludes his series looking at the life of former FIFA president Sepp Blatter, who was suspended by FIFA last year amid corruption allegations. Well, Stuart has put together a profile of Blatter based on a recent biography of him. We heard of Blatter's determination to get to the top, his very good relationship with Africa, and last time Stuart focused on the drama of Blatter's downfall. Well, to finish off, Stuart evaluates Blatter's time as the head of world football. In an earlier part, I quoted the Nigerian former national football coach, Sunday Olise, who said, Sepp Blatter did what was best for Africa. It is sad how negatively he is judged in Europe. How do we explain that dichotomy? As we acknowledge, there is no doubt that Blatter did a great deal of good for Africa. The question that many in Europe have asked is what was his motivation, and did he act with integrity? Now, as early as 1998, on the eve of the presidential FIFA election, Egidius Braun, the president of the German Football Federation, said, yesterday our candidate had 110 votes, but today only 80, because Sepp Blatter bought the rest. Or again, in 2002, the president of the Spanish Football Association, Angel Maria Villar, said, I will not be part of your plot. It's mean. So there had been whisperings about Blatter's leadership and his integrity over a number of years. 
And on the eve of the vote to determine who would host the 2018 and 2022 World Cups, the Sunday Times newspaper in London produced thousands of documents which raised questions about whether the Qatar bid to host the 2022 World Cup had followed the FIFA rules. Blatter dismissed the evidence without even looking at it. Blatter has also tried to blame the police investigations in Switzerland and America on England and America being bad losers in terms of not winning bids to host World Cups. To quote his exact words, he said, England did not cope well with their defeat by Russia in the vote for 2018. And again, had the American bid to host the 2022 World Cup succeeded, then the 2015 crisis would never have happened. The book also says that in Germany, England and Switzerland, Blatter is criticised no matter what he does or what he says. Blatter's own view, which he has said on several occasions, is you cannot buy the right to host a World Cup. The political lobbying is critical. And again, I have never bought a vote. But ironically, on the very day that I read the following statement in a book, I follow a principle learned from my father, never take money that you have not earned. Auditors discovered that Sepp Blatter and his general secretary, Jerome Valka, had paid themselves bonuses of several million dollars. Blatter's comment on this, in terms of finance, I have done nothing to reproach myself about. On an earlier crisis, Blatter said, the rumour hung over me for a long time. The word corruption was disconcertingly used. But I know I have not been guilty of anything, and the Swiss judiciary reached the same conclusion. I would simply say it remains to be seen whether the Swiss judiciary will come to the same conclusion over the next few years. The unanswered questions about Sepp Blatter's presidency are essentially, how did he permit a situation in which 20 of the 24 members of the executive committee of FIFA are under investigation by police and in some cases are under arrest. Did he know this corruption was occurring? In which case, was he a fit person to lead the organization? And if he did know, why did he not try to stop it? And his defense that it's the federations who send us the corrupt people, I don't think that really is an answer because the structures of FIFA should prevent it. And to accuse the American legal system of making arrests and investigating corruption only because they were not invited to host the 2022 World Cup is plainly nonsense. His defense against involvement in acts which have led to one former executive committee member being investigated are that he cannot explain why his signature is on a document is simply not good enough. There could be a great deal more to emerge before the FIFA story has run its course and before final judgment can be made on the contribution of Sepp Blatter. Well, big questions that clearly point the blame at Sepp Blatter, although he's always insisted that he is innocent. Now, Solomon, do you think that Africa will have good memories of Sepp Blatter as FIFA president, despite his controversial downfall? I feel Africa indeed do have great memories of Sepp Blatter as FIFA president. But if you, it all depends on what part of Africa or what sort of people in Africa we're talking about here. 
typical football fan that supports a team in Ghana, a team in Kenya, or a team in South Africa or Nigeria, you know, the memory is going to be great uh, for Sepp Blatter because for the first time he brought World Cup to Africa. You know, in 2010, South Africa hosted the World Cup. Uh, but, but I don't think, uh, for people that love, really love African football, I don't think they would really hold him high there in high esteem. You know, with the recent allegations of South Africa paying a $10 million bribe also, that's not really something that uh, Africans would remember him in, the, in a good way with. Well, thanks, Solomon. Uh, Sepp Blatter certainly did a lot for African football, although his time ended in controversy. And thanks a lot to Stuart Weir for that series on Sepp Blatter. So the new FIFA president is Gianni Infantino, and if he delivers on his promises, he should also be good for African football. Well, that's it for the show for this week, but on Facebook and on WhatsApp we're asking, has Emmanuel Adebayor fulfilled his potential? He's no doubt one of the best Africans to have ever played in the English Premier League. Adebayor had an excellent spell at Arsenal, but didn't do as well as expected at Manchester City, Real Madrid and Tottenham. Nonetheless, he's always been able to score important goals, and he took Togo to the 2006 World Cup Finals. So do you think that Emmanuel Adebayor has fulfilled his potential as a player? He's now 32 years old. Send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. We'll go to our Facebook page, Planet Sport Football Africa. From me, Steve Vickers in Zimbabwe, from Solomon Ashoms in Nigeria, and from Stuart Weir, thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.